This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Laryngospasm by Dr. Helena Leahy. In this lecture, you will learn about the risk factors and mechanism of laryngospasm, as well as how to diagnose and treat this potentially dangerous anesthetic complication. Laryngospasm is the prolonged closure of the glottis. It is an exaggeration of a protective reflex that helps to prevent aspiration. Laryngospasm more commonly occurs in children compared to adults. Common signs are strider and paradoxical chest movement due to respiratory effort by the patient, but inability to move air across a closed glottic opening. Differential diagnosis include bronchospasm, supraglottic obstruction, and breath holding. The risk factors for laryngospasm can be categorized into three types, anesthesia-related factors, patient-related factors, and surgery-related factors. Anesthesia-related risk factors include stimulation of the patient or direct stimulation of the vocal cords by blood, mucus, the presence of a nasogastric tube, suctioning or laryngoscope blade during a light plane of anesthesia. Studies have shown that the use of inhalational agents increases the risk compared to IV anesthetic agents. Multiple attempts at intubation or LMA insertion increase the risk. Another risk factor is less experienced or non-pediatric anesthesia providers. A patient-related factor is young age. Laryngospasm is three times more common in younger children compared to adults and two times more common in older children compared to adults. Infants ages 1 to 3 months are at highest risk. Ex-premature babies under 1 year of age also have elevated risk for developing laryngospasm. The incidence is 17 out of 1,000 in children 0 to 9 years old. The risk for laryngospasm is increased during acute respiratory infection and up to 6 weeks after resolution of the infection. The incidence is 96 over 1,000 in patients with respiratory infection. A positive respiratory history, such as wheezing with exercise or a nocturnal dry cough, increases the risk for laryngospasm. Other patient factors include upper airway abnormality, history of GERD, obesity with diagnosis of sleep disordered breathing, and exposure to cigarette smoke. Certain types of surgery predispose patients to higher risk for laryngospasm. Those surgeries include otolaryngology surgeries, especially tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, plastic surgery, appendectomy and hypospadias repair, bronchoscopy and endoscopy, and thyroid surgery. The mechanism for laryngospasm is the lack of inhibition of glottic reflexes due to inadequate central nervous system depression and increased stimuli of the vagus nerve during light anesthesia. The larynx is innervated by the superior laryngeal nerve. The muscles of the larynx are innervated by the recurrent laryngeal nerve except the cricothyroid muscle, which is innervated by the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. The afferent pathway is the internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve, a branch of the vagus nerve. The efferent pathway is the recurrent laryngeal nerve. There are three mechanisms to laryngospasm. The inspiratory strider is failure of the abductor muscles. 
Expiratory stridor is adduction of vocal cords. Ball valve obstruction is the closure of true and false cords and collapse of soft tissue above the glottis. Laryngospasm can be complete or partial. In the case of complete laryngospasm, there will be chest movement but no ventilation. During partial laryngospasm, there is partial closure of vocal cords, but air still passes through the posterior commissure, so there is stridulous noise and a mismatch between respiratory effort and air movement. Treatment of laryngospasm starts with first removing the irritating stimulus, such as secretions, oral airway, or laryngoscope blade. The next step is to apply continuous positive airway pressure with administration of 100% oxygen. This technique works well during partial laryngospasm but will not work for complete airway obstruction and can result in insufflating the stomach. If laryngospasm does not resolve with CPAP, the next technique to try is the jaw thrust maneuver. The jaw thrust maneuver works because the vigorous forward pull of the mandible lengthens the thyrohyoid muscle and unfolds the supraglottic tissue. Another maneuver to try is called the Larsen maneuver, which is firm pressure at the laryngospasm notch, which is located slightly cephalad to the earlobe between the mastoid process and the mandibular condyle. If laryngospasm does not resolve with CPAP or jaw thrust maneuvers, the next step is to deepen the plane of anesthesia with propofol. The intravenous dosing is 0.25 to 0.8 milligrams per kilogram. If the patient does not have intravenous access or if deepening the plane of anesthesia does not break the laryngospasm, you can administer succinylcholine. The intravenous dosing is 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram and the intramuscular dosing is 4 milligrams per kilogram. Note that if succinylcholine is contraindicated, you may use rocuronium at 0.9 to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. Succinylcholine may cause bradycardia and require treatment with atropine, 0.02 milligrams per kilogram for intravenous and intramuscular dosing. After giving propofol or succinylcholine, you will need to manage the airway by providing mask ventilation as the patient will be apneic and probably already desaturated. Reintubation may be necessary if the patient is hypoxic. Note that severe hypoxia or hypercarbia may terminate laryngospasm, but we want to avoid potentially life-threatening complications by intervening early. The most common complication of laryngospasm is desaturation. Another potential complication is pulmonary aspiration. During laryngospasm, as the patient is making respiratory effort against an obstructed upper airway, there is high negative intrathoracic pressure, which can lead to negative pressure pulmonary edema. In rare cases of laryngospasm, severe hypoxia can lead to cardiac arrest. If cardiac arrest occurs, proceed to the PALS algorithm for cardiac arrest. Given the potential dangerous complications, how do you prevent laryngospasm? First, correct modifiable risk factors such as waiting six weeks from upper respiratory infection before proceeding with elective cases or decreasing smoking exposure. Second, ensuring adequate depth of anesthesia prior to IV placement and other stimulations such as laryngoscopy, LMA attempts, suctioning, and placing oral airway can also prevent laryngospasm. Using a muscle relaxant for intubation decreases the risk for laryngospasm. 
Giving positive pressure breath while removing the ET tube decreases adductor response of laryngeal muscles, and it is also followed by a forceful exhalation that helps clear the airway of secretions. Lidocaine either administered intravenously or topically directly on the cords is controversial. Giving magnesium is also controversial. The proposed mechanism of action is smooth muscle relaxation and deepening the anesthetic. To review, the steps for treating laryngospasm. 1. Remove stimuli. 2. CPAP with 100% oxygen and jaw thrust maneuvers. 3. Deepen anesthetic with propofol. 4. Give succinylcholine. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information.